0: Today's text is Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, through 22, verse 6. That's on page 1937 of your Pew Bibles.
1: We will start with with our reminder of the importance of being attentive to these words.
0: When we get to our text for the day, you may notice that John gets younger as he moves closer to heaven. That's a small reminder of how life is restored as we draw closer to God.
1: Now hear God's word from Revelation.
0: The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place.
1: He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of
0: this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near.
2: When I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God
1: the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death.
2: One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me,
0: Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb,
2: And he carried me away in the Spirit.
3: And he carried me away in the Spirit to a mountain great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall, with twelve gates, and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. And there were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it is wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be twelve thousand stadia in length, as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using a human measurement, and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite the eighth barrel, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was gold, as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp.
0: Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Then the angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place.
1: The word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God.
4: We are almost uh, to the end of the book of Revelation. Almost. But before we take a look at the end, I want to make sure that we remember the beginning. And so as we begin today, I want us to think back to chapter 1 and the vision that John sees of the ascended Jesus Christ in all of his glory. And If you recall what happens there, John takes a look at that glorious Jesus, and he falls down on his face as though dead. And Jesus then does an incredibly gracious thing. He places his right hand on John, and he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. But we said at that time that we have seemed to take in those words, don't be afraid, by this uh, glorious ascended Jesus who has risen from the dead and we've taken it to to mean when grandma has her funeral Jesus speaks to us all and says it's all going to be okay don't worry we sort of flipped that on its head and said that in the context of the book of revelation what Jesus is saying there is remember grandma when she was alive And remember how she lived her faith, faithfully and courageously, faithful to her Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Remember how she lived her life and don't be afraid to live your life like her because I I was dead and I am alive forever and ever and ever. There is nothing to be afraid of, even in this atmosphere where we are assaulted by Satan and by his encore day after day after day, when we are told that we must compromise with Babylon, that we must get in bed with the great prostitute, that we must deny Jesus Christ at every corner or we will not survive, Jesus says, be faithful, don't be afraid Be faithful because I was faithful and even though I died and it looked like I was defeated, I have been raised and I have gained victory. And likewise, you will gain victory if you are faithful to your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And now we come to that place in the the book of Revelation where we see what's actually in store For all of those who overcome. For all of those who are conquerors. Okay? Now we see what's in store. And what Revelation tells us is that Babylon will fall. Babylon must fall. And the new Jerusalem must take its place. The kingdom of this earth must fall so that the kingdom of our God and of his Christ may come. But again, what we read here in these last couple of chapters, what we just read, is not to make us forget this life, to forget about here and now, and to dream about what is to come sometime in the future. These chapters are actually meant to encourage us not to be afraid to live for Christ. To be faithful and true to the Lord, our God. And friends, there's a lot here in these chapters. We've got a lot to cover and not a lot of time, so I'm going to try to break this down into three basic themes for us that we find in these chapters this morning. We're going to look at the New Jerusalem as a place, a people, and as the uh, the presence of God. Okay? A place, a people, and the presence of God. So let's begin. The New Jerusalem is a place. As it's presented in, in Revelation, it's a place. A friend of mine um, long ago had to preach on this text, and he, um, he recalled the film Fil- Field of Dreams, old film. But if you remember that at all, it was a film in which Kevin Costner was a Midwest farmer, And he built a baseball diamond in his cornfield, hoping that Shoeless Joe Jackson, a star from the past, um, whose career was cut short by scandal, he was hopeful that Shoeless Joe would come back and play baseball on his diamond. Well, eventually, if you know the story, he does. And so do a lot of other players who somehow had their baseball dreams uh, cut short. They come to this place called the Field of Dreams to actually live out their dreams. Well, at the end of the first day where uh, Shoeless Joe actually plays baseball on this diamond, it's the end of the day, he's about to walk back into the corn stalks for the night. And he turns and he calls out to the farmer and he says, is this heaven? And if you recall that look of Kevin Costner, that, that signature sheepish sheepish grin on his face, he says back with some embarrassment, it's Iowa. It's Iowa. Now, unless you grew up amid those cornfields and co-ops and implement dealers, we generally don't think of Iowa as heaven. But no offense to Iowa because we really don't think of anywhere here on earth as heaven, do we? In fact, we tend to think of heaven as, as somewhere else else. It's somewhere off in the clouds with angels and and harps and fleshless floating souls. Our view of heaven does not include the smells of Iowa, or for that matter, the smells of any other state or city of the earth. In other words, our view of heaven is distinct from earth. Which is strange because in the Bible, heaven and earth always go together. They're a set. When God created the world, He created what? The heavens and the earth. And when in Revelation 21, God recreates the world, what do we read? He, he recreates the heavens and the earth. We see a new heaven and a new earth. You can't have one without the other they always go together now the new Jerusalem we read about this new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven in other words it is the work of God God is the creator God is the designer God is the redeemer of the new Jerusalem but yet it comes down to the earth it doesn't remain up in heaven it's a part of it's a part of this earth our earth Okay. And I just want to say one thing about that, about the New Jerusalem that we're told here in particular, and I want us to remember, and that is, it's a city. Okay, there's a lot that we could say about the New Jerusalem as a place, but I want you to remember that it's a city. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because in the book of Revelation, the city gets a pretty bad rap. Okay? Okay. When we think of the city in Revelation, what do we tend to think of? Well, we tend to think of what we talked about just a couple of weeks ago. We tend to think of Babylon. We tend to think of Rome. We think of the excesses and the luxuries. We think of the slaves and the gold-plated ceilings and the rivers of wine and the temples to all the gods and goddesses. You think of cutthroat commerce and the injustices uh, that take advantage of the poor and the simple and who make just a few extremely, extremely rich. And so when we think of heaven, we think that heaven must be anything but the city. It must be the opposite of the city, right? We think of the country. We think of pastoral hills, flush valleys, orchards, or teeming with fruit. We think of what? We think of Eden. We think of the garden. And while John's vision of heaven is... Eden-like in many, many ways, it remains a city. And this is important, friends, because what this means is God is affirming our day jobs. God is affirming our day jobs. You see, what we have to understand is the picture of Babylon is twisted and profane. It's the result of human beings who who seek to serve themselves and to be their own gods. Profit and power are their tools. They rape the earth, they plunder the nations, they betray their neighbors. And they flaunt their sins like the gaudy jewelry of the prostitute. But Babylon is the result of human sin and misplaced desires. And what we can't forget is that God himself instructed human beings to fill the earth and subdue it, to fill the earth not just with children, not just with people, but with culture, with all sorts of the things that they create. God instructs us to take the raw resource of creation and to make something of it. To build buildings and craft musical instruments and tame horses and engineer planes and buy and sell food and clothing and all the things necessary for life. And God instructed us to do all of these things in a way that acknowledges Him as God, the one that we serve. And, and to do it in a way that acknowledges other human beings as image bearers of this God and acknowledges the earth as God's possession, His handiwork, not our own. Not our own to, to rape and pillage as ever we desire. In other words, God said to be faithful to Him with our day jobs. And then He says, and when we are in some way, shape, or form, our work, our service, our labor, our sweat, our inventions, all of that will somehow be a part of heaven. It will be a part somehow of the new Jerusalem. You see, the new Jerusalem is more than Eden. Eden now includes all of the godly characteristics of the city. And friends, this is emphasized in this chapter as as you read through it. If you look down at verse 24, the kings of the earth, you see, are bringing all of their splendor into the new Jerusalem, not because it's being extorted from them, right? Or not because they are making payment that's due to the great prostitute. They are bringing their splendor to the glory of God. They want to honor Him with all the wealth of their nations, and the city glows with that splendor. You also see in verse 2 that the city is prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband, right? And we read about the, the, the linens of the bride in chapter 19, the, the bright white linens that she wears, and we read that those were what? The righteous deeds of the saints. She is clothed with the righteous deeds of the saints, and she is clothed for her husband and friends this is in contrast with what we read about the harlot of babylon who wears what purple and scarlet and and she's flecked with gold and and all of it is meant not to honor but to seduce to deceive to enslave people not so the bride the bride we see the new jerusalem We read about all the jewels that she too is garnered with, right? But it's all done for the groom, to the glory of God. And friends, when these things are done for God's glory, they will stand. They will last. They will be a part of that city. And so, what are we being told here? We're being told, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to live fully and faithfully for God, even in your everyday labors, because somehow in some way you will be contributing to the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem is a place. The new Jerusalem is also a people, all right? It's a people. But what people is the question, all right? What people make up the new Jerusalem? If you look at verse 3, you read there, some covenant words. Now, the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. I want you to look at one little word there. It says, they will be his people. Now, there's some dispute here among Bible translators and among the actual texts, which has a stronger case if that word should be singular or plural. Should it say they will be His people or they will be His peoples? There actually seems to be more strength for the plural there, for the word peoples, and yet the translators here use people, and I wonder why that is. And friends, I think it has something to do with the fact that, like I said, this is covenant language. We hear it throughout the Bible. God comes to His people, Israel, and He says, I will be your God and you shall be my people. And so it's covenant language, and so the translators place that same language right here in Revelation. However, I don't think they go deep enough into the covenant, because God doesn't have just one covenant people. God has all the peoples in mind in his covenant. If you go way back to Genesis chapter 12, what God says when he comes to Abraham and he he makes his initial covenant, he says, Abraham i will be your god i will bless you and through you i will bless all the peoples of the world i will bless all the peoples of the world and what he's telling abraham is abraham i love you all right but not only you i love all the peoples of the world and what we see here in revelation 21 In the new Jerusalem, is that all the peoples will be there. All the peoples will be there. Well, big deal. What does that have to do with us? Well, friends, if you remember chapters 10 and 11 in the book of Revelation, what did we say? We said that all these judgments of God were falling upon the earth, and yet the nations of the earth were not responding. They were not coming to praise God. They were not repenting of their sins. Chapters 10 and 11 told us that something has to be added to those mute judgments of God. What? The suffering witness of the church. Just as Jesus was a faithful witness unto death, the church is called to be a faithful witness even unto death. And when we saw the faithful witness of the church added to those mute judgments, we saw the nations repent and give glory to God. What John is telling us here, friends, is don't give up. Don't give up. It will seem often as if your witness is all for naught, as if it's not doing any good, And John says, don't give up. Don't give up. There's a phrase that we keep hearing in the book of Revelation, and it's a phrase that mentions all the nations and peoples and tongues. Jesus Christ takes his people out of that group from every tongue, nation, tribe, and people. He takes his own people out of that group and redeems them. And then he sends that group of people, his church, back to that same group of people, to every tribe and language and nation and people. And it works. God's plan will not be thwarted, friends. It will not be thwarted. And so all your prayers that you've uttered for your children or for parents or for fast friends, all the times you've faced that fork in the road and you've chosen the more difficult path so you would maintain the integrity of your witness, all the times you've willingly looked the fool and bumbled on about Jesus being your life and your hope and how you hope that it's going to be someone else's hope and Jesus says none of that's in vain. All the peoples will be there. Now, that doesn't mean every single person is going to be saved, right? There's still a contrast between verse 7 and and verse 8. But all the peoples will be there. God's will will be done. Finally, the New Jerusalem is not just a people... It's not just a place, but it's also the presence of God. And John hits us over the head here again and again and again. Let me try and show that to you. Um, Verse 22, there's no temple in the city because God and the Lamb are its temple. In other words, you don't have to go to a place to worship God any longer because God is there. You worship Him in Iowa Okay, verse 23. The city needs no sun and moon for the glory of God gives it its light. That's a reference back to the creation story, isn't it? Where the creation is filled with light even before God creates the sun and the moon. It will be like that again. If you go back to verse 15, the new Jerusalem is measured by the angel, right? And it measures out to be a perfect cube. Why is that? Well, if you think back to the temple, The Holy of Holies in the temple was a perfect cube. That one place that the high priest only once a year and only he could enter, that was a perfect cube. That was the place of God's intimate presence. Right? An ultimate holiness. And now we're told the new Jerusalem will be the Holy of Holies. In 22 verse 3, we find that the throne of God is in the city. Up to this point, the throne of God has always been up in heaven somewhere. We keep looking up to heaven and we see the throne of God. And Now the throne of God is right here in the city. It's right among us. In 22 verse 4, we are told that we shall see God face to face. What we are being told here again and again is that God will be near like we have never known His nearness before. Remember the Old Testament? What did it teach us about God? taught us that God has to remain at a distance. Right? God has to remain at a distance. No one could touch the Ark of the Covenant, which was the throne of God. No one could touch the Ark, or what would happen? You would die. No one could see the face of God. Moses was told this, or you would die. No one could enter the Holy of Holies, or you would die. God was only safe at a distance. Now we read that the throne of God is among us. Now we read that Iowa is the holy of holies. Now we see God face to face. God is near. Now, the question I want to ask you is what's that going to be like? What's it going to be like with God that near? I want to use a couple of images here that we find in the book of Revelation. If you go way back to chapter 1, you know, we get the greeting that we've heard just about every worship service. Grace and peace to you from Him who is and who was, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness firstborn from the dead. And then the people respond. It says, To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests kingdom and priest to serve his god and father you find that pair that coupling kingdom and priests over and over in the book of revelation again you find it in, in 20 verse 6 it refers there to the martyrs right who the martyrs will share his uh, will share the throne of god we find it in 22 verse 5 they will reign forever and ever were referred to as kings and priests, we reign with our God. Let me just break that down a little for us. First, we're going to be priests, or we actually are priests already. And we will continue to be priests. Only the high priest, if you, if you look at verse, or chapter 22, verse 4, it says, they will see his face, that is us, we will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Why is that there? Well, we've talked about, you know, the name of God as opposed to the name of the beast being on our foreheads as a mark of who are we loyal to, who do we worship, who do we obey. But there's more to that name on the foreheads. In fact, the high priest, when he was going to enter into the Holy of Holies, would get up his special garb and one thing was a turban and that turban he would place a crown and that crown had the name of God on it. He could enter then into the Holy of Holies with the name of God on his forehead. What we're being told here is all of us are going to be priests who enter into the Holy of Holies, not just once a year, but always. We shall be priests drawing near to God. We will see him face to face. Are we ready? What expression do you think you're going to see on God's face? The first time you look at him and he looks at you, the first time you lock eyes with God, what expression do you think will be on his face? Maybe compassion for all that you've had to go through in life? Maybe joy that he's so happy to see you? Maybe satisfaction with the way that you've lived your life? You think there could be any sorrow there? Or disapproval? Or displeasure? With how we've lived our lives? How do we prepare for that day? How do we how do we be assured that? will see joy and satisfaction not disapproval well there is one way right to be prepared there is one who we know is the perfect representation of God his name is Jesus Christ and we have seen his face full of grace and truth and and friends As Christians, what are we called to? We are called to look at Jesus and He is the faithful witness. He witnesses to us about the Father. Over and over and over again, He tells us what the Father is like, what the Father loves, what the Father hates, what the Father encourages, what the Father disapproves of. He is the faithful witness and as we walk with Him day by day, We, you and I, should be learning the Father's face. Learning what makes him smile. The ones who are prepared, friends, to see the face of God are the ones who today are looking at and listening to the faithful and true witness. That's how we prepare, that's how we help others prepare. And so don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to walk with Jesus. It's preparing us for something even greater. Second, we won't just be priests, but we'll be kings. We're going to reign. Okay, that's what we read. To the one who overcomes, this was the message to Laodicea, right? To the one who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. And here we read it again. We will reign forever and ever and ever Now, most of us have a little bit of trouble with that image. I mean, how can we reign when we know that God really reigns? What's that going to be like? God's going to have this major throne, and we're all going to have sort of little thrones around him, little thrones that really don't mean anything. Why don't they mean anything? Well, because, I mean, God reigns, right? He's, He's king. He has subjects. I mean, who's going to be our subjects? who are going to be our subjects friends i think i think that's that's the point here you see whenever we think of earthly thrones and earthly kingdoms and earthly rule we think of it in terms of subjects don't we who we can force to do our will who must obey us And and that's thinking of rule in the way that Babylon and its kings think of rule. Babylon ruled in a way that oppressed people and exploited them and used them. That's how things are with human thrones. We're always over someone. We have subjects, right, who bend their wills to ours. God rules differently. The fulfillment of God's rule His perfect rule is also the fulfillment of our deepest desires. See, the picture here is not one of earthly rule. It's probably more familial, if you can think in those terms. When does a family function best? Does a family function best when mom and dad have to continually assert their authority and say, Because I said so, that's why. I mean, is that going to be the best way to raise your kids? If you've got to keep saying that over and over, it's not a delight, is it, parents? It's best when children understand that their parents love them and can trust that the parents want what's best for them. So it is with God. Do we trust that He wants what's best for us? Think of a marriage, okay? Paul's description of a marriage in Ephesians 5 is one of mutual subjection. Listen to what he writes. Submit to one another, then, out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another. Now, I've done a lot of premarital counseling in my time, and um, people always want to ask the question, but who has the last word? Who has the ultimate decision? Right? Because we assume that we're never going to really get along that well. Someone's always got to have the ultimate decision. Um, Who's going to decide whether we buy a car or not? Or what kind? Do we buy a Ford or a Chevy? The wife wants one, the husband wants another. Who gets to decide? Who gets to make the ultimate decision? For some reason, we can't imagine the scenario that Paul lays before us. Mutual submission. In fact, even Paul struggles with it. If you read further on in that text, this is what he says. This is a profound mystery. But I am talking about Christ and the church. And so is John. He's talking about Christ and the church. He's talking about the Lamb and His bride. He's talking about God and, And his people. And you see, in the New Jerusalem, there is no distance between God and his people. Between the one who sits on the throne and the people over whom he rules, there is no distance. God's will has become the will of his people. They are perfectly in sync, bride and groom, dancing together. No one has to lead. They are perfectly in sync because God is near how do we know that that can be possible again we have someone to look to don't we right here and right now to the lamb who already shares the throne of the father in heaven the lamb will teach us the perfect and right will of God day after day after day. And as we learn that will of God, we learn this is right, this is good, this is what's best for me. I can't wait to look into the eyes of God. The final place we see God's nearness is back in verse 4, where it says that He will wipe every tear from our eyes. We're almost through. I don't know if you noticed, but throughout Revelation, the judgments of God, which seem to be flying everywhere, the judgments of God are always mediated by someone else. They come from God ultimately, but they're mediated by angels or the four living creatures or something of that nature. Here we're told in verse 4 that when God comes to wipe away our tears, he comes directly not mediated he comes with his own hand his own finger and he wipes our tears away it's one thing if your mom you know when you're crying you've hurt yourself it's one thing if your mom sends your big sister over to comfort you not that big sisters are bad but it's something special when mom takes you in her lap and does it herself isn't it God comes directly to us. Directly to us. And notice something else here. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. It doesn't say tears, He's going to wipe your tears away. He says every single tear. James was about seven years old. He and the rest of his second grade class spent the whole afternoon at school making Christmas ornaments for their parents. All the parents were invited to school that night for a little Christmas party where the kids were going to present their parents with their creations. James was so excited to show his parents what he had made for them. When they got to school, he ran down the hall ahead of them. He He grabbed his ornament out of his locker and he ran back to show his parents. Only as he was running, he tripped and he fell and the ornament smashed into pieces on the ground. As James burst into tears, his his dad came over and, and he said, James, don't worry, it's no big deal. And James didn't stop crying. And then his mom came over and She picked up the broken ornament and started putting the pieces back together. And then she held it in front of James and she said, James, it's beautiful. Did you make this all by yourself? And slowly the sobbing stopped. Don't be afraid, says Jesus. And so we're not. We live courageously. We live for God's glory, not for fame or riches or security or ease. And we refuse to compromise with Babylon. In fact, we do our best to come out of Babylon. And because of that, we often take it on the chin. We suffer for being faithful to God And the tears begin to accumulate, many tears. One day we come running with our little ornament to God, all broken to pieces. He doesn't say, hey, it's no big deal. And He doesn't look at our efforts as if, hey, they're just one big package one big package of tears that he can wipe away. The text says that he takes them one at a time. He says, Judy, I remember this one. That was hard. I remember this one, the time that people lied about you, said you were someone you weren't. And I remember this one. And one by one, he wipes them away. Isn't it interesting how the tears accumulate because we're not being afraid and we're bearing faithful witness Suffering witness to Jesus. Isn't it interesting how those things, John says, actually bring in the new Jerusalem? And then in the new Jerusalem, the same God who put his hand on us and said, don't be afraid, comes back and he wipes every tear from our eyes. Friends, the New Jerusalem, it's a real place. It's just as real as, as Iowa. It's just as real as Milwaukee. And in that place, we will know God's real presence like we have never known it before. And the way to prepare. To dance with our groom is to dance with him now. Let's pray. Lord our God, we thank you for the encouragement that you give to your church to never give up, to always be faithful no matter what it means to be faithful even unto death, because just as real as the suffering and the tears might be now, even more real will be the joy and the compassion and the reward. Lord, we look forward to that day when we shall dance with the groom, with the lamb. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.